All right. Good morning. Man, hope you had a good morning. I know Sundays can be really crazy. Like, like I, this morning I left my kid in the wrong class and he's like, good luck. <laughs> Adios. And then Paige is like, where's our kid? Oh, hello, worship. So I hope you have a better morning. That's why we need each other, right? We come, we worship together, we enjoy each other as church family. I love it. And that's why, as we can tell, life can be very volatile. And, uh, we, moment we could be up, next moment we could be down. We just don't know what the future holds for us in this life always. And so we have to understand, we have to depend on God. And we have to know that we can plan for A, B, C, and D, but sometimes we have to revert to plan Z. Sometimes God's plan is totally different. And that's why Psalm 16 is something that really encourages me, and I think it will as you as well. Psalm 16. We're going to start in Psalm 16. Our main passage for the day is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. But Psalm 16, look at verse 5 and look at verses 8 through 9. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. He holds our lives. I have set you, set the Lord always before me. He leads the way because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I love that. It always comforts me, especially when I'm down or I need to be reminded of my aim. We lose our purpose and we can all resonate with that because well, we can get lost in ourselves. And what happens is we try to find salvation in other things. We try to find salvation in politics and in money. And what we see from this psalm is that that's not the way to go. That leads to a meaningless way of living. And right now, we're getting close to the election day, right? Early voting is, is coming. If it's not already here, we have an economy that's just kind of, kind of in the dumps. And I say that not to be political, just to state the facts. This is what we're feeling. This is what we're thinking about and talking about. This is what's going on around us. We can feel it when we're at the grocery store, when we pump gas. We can you know, feel it when we try to buy a gift for someone that we, we love or try to help someone like a brother and sister in Christ. And we think, now, how can we afford this? How can I do this? And so this morning, as we talk about these things with our friends and our neighbors and our peers, and we're feeling that financial pressure, I want to encourage us, stay strong to stay strong, to stay courageous, to rely on something greater, that we will make it through this, and to be positive in all that we say and all that we do, because God is going to work it out for his good. It's to glorify God, as we sang just moments ago, and Parker did a good job. Thank you, Parker. And so Psalm 16, verse 8, should remind us that if we stand by God, if he has our life in his hands, we are not shaken. We're not to be shaken. And so when we talk about these things, the people who are nervous and obsessed, really, such as you know politics and the economy, we have to remember that we stand by God. And when we do that, we're unmoved. We're unmoved and we are unshaken. And yet what happens is we turn on the TV and we see people get just deeply emotional, things that they, that's out of their control, that they can't control. And we worry about, you know, some guy in a big white house and a governor and whatever law or policy is being enacted. But we have to remember that these things, is not, it's not where our security is at. We cannot 
rely on those things. And so Psalm 16, verse 9, that's really, really big encouragement. Our entire being, it says, isn't only glad, our entire being should rejoice, not in who is in office. Our entire being should rejoice in what? In who God is. And so I want to remind you to depend not on those things, the physical things of this world, but to believe in Jesus, believe in the power of the gospel. And if we do that, we should have no fear. Verse 9, we should stand secure. And so crack open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, that's going to be our main passage. Look at verses 3 through 4. Paul talks about these very things in a different way, but the application still remains the same. Paul is talking to Timothy, and Timothy wants to go be with Paul. He wants to go on to bigger and better things. And Paul tells him, no, your work in the ministry here is good. It's good. I want you to keep going as a minister in Ephesus. And he says this in verse 3. As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul here cares about the church in Ephesus. He wants to see them grow. He wants to see Timothy do his job as well, not to be swayed and and deceived by, as it says there, false teachings, by verse 4, different doctrines. But what is the meaning behind these different doctrines? What's motivating these doctrines? As it says in verse 6, vain discussions, it's meaningless. And verse 4, speculations, they're speculative. So these are meaningless, speculative teachings Not only does it boil down to the fact that they are false, but it boils down to the fact that they are distractions. They're distractions. They derail us from Jesus, who isn't some different doctrine. He is the true doctrine. He is the doctrine, if you will. And yet there are so many things, if you think about it, in our life and in our faith that just derail us, that distract us, verse 5, from what Paul calls our aim. Politics and the economy and so many other meaningless things in the grand scheme of things are just speculative. There's speculation. No one can really rely on those things. They're out of our control. And so Paul wants us to, hey, look, focus on the aim. Find comfort in the power of the gospel, which is that true doctrine. And yet, that's not what we see happen. So many people instead make their aim the physical things of this world. I want, for example, liberty to be able to do whatever I want, however I want, no one can tell me any differently. I want economic equality across the board, and so on and so on. And these physical things can be, sure, important, and they may affect our daily lives, but again, that is not where our security lies. The security of our souls do not depend on the physical or even, for example, the continuation of our bloodline and what our children have and what our children's children do. doesn't matter. Jesus has taken what this world holds as valuable. He's taken things like titles and money and sex and diminished them to dust as meaningless And Paul tells us these endless speculative things are just a distraction. They are, verse 6, empty, vain discussions. What is a speculation? 
Speculations are really just a matter of opinion, a matter of opinion or possibility. And God says, you know what? I don't deal in speculation. I deal, I deal in absolutes. I deal in what is absolute. Why? Because he is absolute. Everything about God is absolutely true. It is God and his redemptive story that we have through Jesus that is truth. It's the only truth that matters in our life. And so, for example, when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's not a speculation. That is absolute truth. That's an absolute. So these things in the world that distract us from our aims just knock us off course. Jesus was constantly saying in his ministry to those that were around him, to the Pharisees even, hey, look, the Romans, the traditions, money, those are all a distraction from your true aim. I think you know what that true aim is. It's a distraction from, he's saying, me. I am your true aim. I am, verse 5, I am that love that you should be aiming for in 1 Timothy chapter 1. One of my favorite sermons is when Paul is talking to the Athenians in Acts 17, verse 29. And he says this about God. He says, being then God's children, we ought not to think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. To the Athenians there, the people in Athens, these stones of gold and silver were images of idols that to them represented things like politics and philosophy and values and myths and traditions. God's divine nature is deeper than that. It gives the gospel message power. Without God's divinity, without his grace, without the message of salvation, even a life of Jesus, it would be meaningless. It might as well be literally stories of gold and silver. And so this is why Jesus didn't come to be a political king or to rule over this physical earth in a sense. He was asking us, strive for something greater. Strive for something larger, something deeper, something more in life than kings, queens, presidents, and policy. Strive instead to live a life for God where his people act godly. When Jesus was preaching the gospel and he preached the gospel himself, he said what? Matthew 4, he would tell, you probably have heard this statement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Not only is he preaching about himself, which only God in a humble way can preach about himself in that sense, but he's speaking of a reality where he is king, a reality that if we live in it should change our entire lives. Our aim should be the gospel. It should be the very life of Jesus and that message it contains. And that reality, as I said, not only gives us salvation, but it changes the way we live and talk and act and how we interact with others and how we even interact with God himself. God doesn't want us to promote speculation. He wants us to promote what is absolute, to promote the gospel message, which comes from God, which is his stewardship, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. That is how he cares for his creation. And this is a creation that has fallen into this pit, this pit of sin, if you will, and he reaches down, and he offers us his hand. And so many times throughout history, and even currently, Psalm 2 is an example of this we'll look at in a second, where people think, I can get out of this pit myself. I can do it by my own strength. They slap God's hand out of the way, and they think, I can solve my problems and the problems of this world by myself, through policy and politics and more money. But what we read in Psalm chapter 2 is verses 1 through 4. 
God laughs at these things, these vain pursuits. Why do the nations, it says, rage in verse 1, and the peoples plot in vain? And the, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, who's his anointed? Jesus saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the cords of his commandments. And what, what happens in verse 4? God who sits in the heavens laughs. God lets down the cords in the pit so they can grab a hole and they cast it away in verse 3. And in verse 6, it goes on where Jesus talks now and it says, As for me, I have sent my king. I have sent Jesus on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have, remember John three sixteen, begotten you. He set apart. Who's that son? We know who it is. God is speaking plainly. And so while nations and people try to free themselves from the sin and the corruption of the world, God sends his son to be king. Where we, play, we pay homage to him, we dedicate our loyalty to him, where in verse 12, we kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Right, if we're a disciple of his, that should be comforting to us. No matter what comes our way, no matter the future, the economic trouble, the political turmoil, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because we take refuge where? We take refuge in Jesus, who is our aim. God reaching down into the, the pit to save us was an act of grace. And we talked about that last week, but that act of grace was a way of him expressing his love. A love that gives the gospel so much power and meaning. And you might be thinking, yeah, well, the gospel isn't putting that $4 loaf of bread on my table or filling, you know, my car with gas. And that's right. I'm not saying that that's literally what it will do, but you have to understand the power of gospel determines our behavior toward those things. That means we have to have an understanding that nothing else should matter as much as having our faith and drawing closer to God. If Jesus is our aim, nothing should matter more than, than hitting that target. First Timothy Chapter one, chapter 1, verse 5. The aim of our charge, it says, is love. The love of Christ. That love is a manifestation of God's stewardship. We read that in the previous verse. So if you're in Matthew, and sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1, you read verse 4 again. What does it say? Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote, it says, speculation. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the opposite of speculation and empty living is the stewardship from God by faith. Now, what does that mean? I had to read that like 20 times as well to understand. But many translations very plainly just translate it as his redemptive plan. What Paul is doing in verse 4, more importantly, is he's giving us two options. He's telling us either choose stewardship or choose speculation. And God, who we determine already to be absolute, to be all-powerful, he chooses stewardship. He practices stewardship for his people. And yet, why would we want to choose a life of speculation? We choose stewardship, and now we have to take a level of responsibility for the life that he has given us, for the faith that we now have. A life without God is simply just relying on guessing and probabilities. But God, he says, no, I have a better life for you than that. And it's an honest and meaningful life. 
Stewardship means I'm going to take responsibility of something, of ownership of something, and that's what God does. He says, these are my people. I'm going to take care of something. And so he expresses and he practices his stewardship on us, taking care of us by giving us salvation. Salvation from sin, the corruption of this world, which, which only depends, if you think about that sin, it only depends on speculations and maybes. And that's what Satan wants. He wants that. Satan will tell us lies so that we look at it and we think, maybe that's a possibility. Maybe I do want that. Maybe that is better. Maybe, maybe I can do this by myself. And God says, no. No, I'm right here. I'm right here. Just take my hand, reach down, and he pulls us out. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, and really throughout his entire ministry, he was practicing stewardship for his creation. And on the cross as he's dying, he says his last words, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's again taking care of them. How can we, how can we know what life really is like? outside of that pit, that pit of sin that we are trapped in. We have no concept of life when we're living our entire lives in sin. That means we have to have faith. We have to grab a hold of his hands or the the cords and they're pulling us up and he saves us from sin because God is there. He's above us. He sees what we can't see. And in sin, we're just speculating. We're hoping maybe money and policy and laws will deliver us. But God knows that life without sin is so much better. That life with God is way better. Where an entire entire being, as we read in Psalm 16, rejoices and is glad, knowing, again, the security of our souls. Nothing should matter more than living out then the power of the gospel and practicing on others the love of Christ and that Christ showed us. A life where we can grow in maturity. A life lived by faith where our aim is Jesus. Where we can have, verse 5 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincerity. That transformation comes from God's power. We need to be living that out. It's the stewardship that God gives through his redemptive plan. In verse 5, let's read that again. We know our aim. right? The aim of our charge, it says, is love. The love of Christ that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A life that lives out the power of God, a life that lives out Jesus and and works to be like Christ. And if we can do that, if we can express that love and experience that life outside of that pit, then we can have, we can spring forth in a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We know you're thinking, well, they're all the same thing. So what's, what's the point? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, Paul encourages Timothy to be a genuine child of faith. If we want to live a real life, if we want to be truly genuine and have a, a real faith to be children of God, then we have to practice these things. The call this morning is to live out the power of the gospel through a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, not getting distracted by false things and, and you know, being derailed, but keeping our attention and our focus on Jesus. A pure heart is going to help us get close to God. It's going to help us draw closer to God. If I'm walking away from God, I'm totally just constantly walking away from him. Do I have a genuine relationship with him? No. You take, for example, the story of Jonah, when God said, you know, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites, and he was walking away, he was running away from God. Did he have a genuine relationship, the same relationship he had when he was in the fish, and he humbled himself, and he started doing what God wanted him to do? 
No, that's when he had a genuine relationship. That's when we saw an entire city of Gentiles, of sinners like you and me, saved. And so when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart in Matthew 5, verse 8, how do we finish that? We finish it by saying they will see God. You want to see what God sees? Have a pure heart. Live pure lives. And that's going to help us have a good conscience. If we have a good conscience, it's more than just being a good moral person. It's more than saying, well, I didn't lie today, so I'm good. I have a good conscience. This is referring to our lives through salvation. God saves us. Jesus makes us pure. The same thing applies to a good conscience. God saves us. Jesus gives us a good conscience. You see, this is the kicker. That's void of sin. That's void of shame. So my being rejoices in Psalm 16 because Jesus broke the chains and broke the bonds of sin. And my conscience isn't bombarded, isn't reminded of past sins that are holding me back. And now I can draw closer to God. Why? Because my slate is clean. Now I can walk by faith. I can know that I can trust in him. And I no longer have that shame. I love Romans 8 and verse 1 tells us, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus gives us not just a good conscience, but a clean conscience. Goodness prepares us for the future, but a clean conscience helps our past, helps get rid of that burden that's holding us down. A good conscience, you see, cannot truly be useful unless our lives are being run by Jesus, where the guilt we feel is godly and the shame never lasts. And that type of conscience is going to help us have a sincere faith that we read about there in verse 5. There is also many in this life who live in speculation and live in doubt, thinking they, they live by faith, but they don't because they don't fully trust God. And that's what a sincerity looks like. When we can put our opinions and we can put our knowledge to the side and we can rely on God's wisdom on what is absolute, a sincere faith changes our lives. Now we can step on what is solid. Now we can rely on that cornerstone. Now we can rely on Jesus. And if we can truly live those out, then we will be genuine children of faith. And yet, we can live our entire life. We can live really our entire life and take the power of the gospel for granted and forget the power that changed us, the, the life that changed us. We forget the influence that Jesus had in changing who we were. And so when it says, for example, when Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, do not be ashamed of the gospel, he's telling us, rely on that power that brought you out of the water, that made you a new creation, and be confident in God's power in your life for the future and for eternity, for the ever-present now. This is a power that we need, and it changes lives. It changes even the most drastic and crazy of sins. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And he even changed Paul's life that we read in verse 12. Let's start there in verse 12. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul was blinded in his soul. He needed salvation. And Jesus, at this moment, stopped becoming a threat, and he started becoming a hope. And he says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's absolute. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So I love, I love that passage. And I love the reason Paul gives as to why he was, why he was saved, why he received that grace and that mercy and the reasons. Verse 13, because he acted ignorantly and unbelief. Well, what is, what is that? See, God looks at us and he says, you guys, we need, we need the gospel. We need Jesus. And who better than Paul to live that out? We think of all the sinners in the world. I mean, think about them for a second. Really evil, evil people. And yet, we can fall in the trap of thinking, no, they're just beyond salvation. They're beyond grace. But Paul calls himself what? He calls himself the worst of sinners, the foremost of sinners. Why? He's saying, I'm worse than the serial killers. I'm worse than the evil dictators. And we might be thinking, that's not true. How is that even possible? Because he's tapping at something deeper. He's saying, I knew better. I knew the law, and I knew God's word better than anyone else, and I still acted in unbelief. He knew what he was supposed to do. He should have seen Jesus in God's scriptures, but his pride blinded him from ever seeing Jesus until quite literally Christ's power came and physically blinded him, and then in that moment he was able to see Jesus, ironically, more clearly than he ever could. And that's what the power of the gospel does for us. As Paul's life is a manifestation of that, it's, it's aiming for that. It's aiming for love. It's aiming for the love of Christ. And in turn, it turns our unbelief into genuine faith. But this is the crux when we read that scripture, verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that statement alone leaves us with one question, which is, are we going to live a life to prove that, to prove our repentance, to prove the change in our life? that God's power brought us. Because a life without God is meaningless. It's just meaningless wandering about. We look for examples like, like injustice. Without God, we will always have injustice. It doesn't matter you know, what generation we live in, what laws we have, left or right, red or blue, we will always have injustice. We look at liberty and wanting to do whatever we want and having no one tell me any different, and we will still have people hurt us. We look for love, and we will still find people who hate us. And that is why we depend on God. This is the God who knows man's heart, the creator of the universe. Who else? Who better to give us justice, to give us freedom, to show us love? You look at verse 12, and Paul reminds us of this, saying, this is the only way you can have a meaningful life. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because there's your justice, because he judged me faithful, there's your freedom, appointing me to his service. And verse 13 goes on to explain his love. Though formerly I was a sinner, he saved me because of the love of Christ. Before we close this morning, I want to leave you with a conversation that I heard on a podcast between uh, an atheist and a theist. Just going to get us something to think about before we leave. Uh, I call him a theist or a deist for a specific reason, you know, not a Christian. You'll, you'll see why. But the theist says to the atheist, this isn't a joke, this is a real conversation. He says to the atheist, you know, why don't you believe in God? Wasn't the birth of your child enough evidence to at least consider that there was or is a God? And the atheist, you know, smugly says, no, 
No, not at all. But he says something very profound that follows that. And this is what he says, I quote, If there was a God, and if I believed in a creator of the universe, it would be the most important and fascinating thing ever. I would dedicate my life every second to studying the scriptures, to learning as much as I can about him. That's what he says. That's amazing. I agree with the atheists there. And yet we sit here in our pews and profess to believe, and yet do we have that same conviction where our entire life is about God and drawing close to him? I see that we do. I pray that we continue in that. And you know what the theist said in response to that? That seems like a waste of time. What a disappointment. What a disappointment. We like the idea of God. We like the idea of Jesus until we have to do something about it. Until we look in the mirror and we see our sin and we realize, and this is where we have to look at it in a positive way, we realize the weight of our sin and we see what Jesus did for us. And that's when we choose today to choose Jesus. To be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins if we haven't yet done that. To dedicate your life to serving him. Paul says, I did that because, verse 14, his never-ending, overflowing grace. And so that is what you want this, this morning. And then come forward now while we stand and we sing.